Going to John 8, if you need a copy of the scriptures this morning, we have a number of Bibles back here on our resource table. We've also gotten restocked on our Gospel of John uh, journals as well. And so if you haven't had a chance to grab one of those and follow along as we've been walking through John's Gospel, uh, I'd encourage you to grab one of those journals. It gives you the actual uh, text of scripture and then also some space for taking notes as well. So I encourage you to grab one of those that are back there as well. John chapter 8. Uh, We're going to be wrapping up this chapter this morning, and let me read our text to us. This is John 8, beginning in verse 37. John 8, verse 37. It's Jesus speaking. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that you do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. 
So for the last few weeks, we have been examining Jesus at what's known as the Feast of Booths. And this is in John 7, 8, and 9. He's in Jerusalem at this annual feast, this annual festival that's a lot like Passover. It's like where the people would remember and celebrate how God had sustained them in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. So Passover, right, was all about remembering how God saved them from Egypt. But the Feast of Booths was all about God's providing for them and sustaining them while they were in the desert of Sinai. Jesus, however, does an astounding thing while he's at this festival. Rather than simply celebrating the feast as a good Jew, he instead stands up in the midst of the feast and effectively declares that he is the source of provision. Right? As they are celebrating how God had provided for them hundreds of years before, Jesus stands up and says, I am the source of all of this. And he does that in two big ways. Uh, first in chapter 7, in verses 37 and 38, he declared, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, so much like he said with the woman at the well back in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? That, that there is this living water that's available, and if you drink it, you will never thirst again. It's, it's much the same metaphor in chapter 7. But then last week in chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, and both of these statements correspond with significant themes that were a part of the Feast of Booths every year. That any, any first century Jew who would have been reading John's words would have immediately picked up on these connections between water and light. Both of those things were a critical part of the festival or the Feast of Booths. And we've talked about some of these in recent weeks, so I won't get into them deeply today. But there was an elaborate water ritual that took place on the last day of the feast. There was this sort of festival of light, not Hanukkah, but this festival each evening or celebration each evening where these massive torches would be lit in the temple and there would be all of this dancing and celebration and prayer that would take place. So, so both of these images, that of Jesus being the source of true water or living water and him also being the light of the world, he he is in essence saying, I am the ultimate source of provision of water and of light. So that's that's kind of going on as as he's talking with all of these different Jewish people during this feast of booths. But underlying these two claims that he's made is this basic question. What is truth? What is truth? Or even more specifically, is Jesus truthful? In what he's claiming about himself, right? In what he's saying. Is, is he trustworthy? Is he true? That's the question that people have been wrestling with. Is this man Jesus, who has caused so much commotion in Jerusalem, is he truthful? Or is he a liar? Or is he some kind of a charlatan? And that's a pivotal question, right? Is Jesus true? Is he trustworthy? It's a pivotal question, and it's a question that I wonder... I wonder if it's a question that you've fully assessed in your own life. 
Is this something that you've actually considered? Um, there, there are legions of people, both inside of the church and outside of the church, who I think have never actually honestly examined the claims of Christ. It's certainly true in the atheist and agnostic community. There are those who have outright rejected Christianity, but they have never really done like a true deep dive on the claims of Christ or on the teachings of Jesus. And that's to be expected, right? But, but strangely, this is also true of many within the church as well, I think which also shouldn't be super surprising because we live in this Christianized culture where I believe because I grew up in a Christian family. You know, grandma believed, and, and my parents are Christians, and so I'm a Christian as well. Um, or, or could it be you believe because Jesus was presented to you as some sort of a, like, get-out-of-jail-free card? Like, Jesus is my pathway out of hell, or, or Jesus is the way that I wind up not being punished for my own sin. There is a thing in the American church called easy believism. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before, but it's, it's basically this mindset that some people have that Jesus really doesn't ask much of us. That basically all he's looking for is some sort of intellectual assent. Like, do you want to go to hell when you die? No. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Okay, well then pray this prayer and you're good to go. By the way, not something we ever see in Scripture, right? We never see uh, the so-called sinner's prayer in Scripture. If you read through the story of Christ, never is he begging people to follow him. He's often, as we'll see today, upping the bar and upping the level of challenge, and never does he simply go, you want to come after me? Okay, repeat after me real quick. And if you do this, you're good to go. And yet that happens all the time in many American churches. It's this idea that as long as I participate in the ritual in some way, then that's enough. And I think what we'll see in our text today is that Jesus has a very different perspective on what it looks like to follow him and be obedient to him. So there are many people who have grown up in the church, have followed Christ um, because people they love and respect follow Christ and have in good faith presented the gospel to them. And, and yet they may genuinely be believers, but yet at the same time, they've never really dug into the claims of Christ never really examined the gospels for what's there. And, and even maybe more importantly, never really considered what commands that Jesus extends to those who claim belief. And here's the thing, if there's, even, if there's even a chance that this is true, don't you owe it to yourself to, to really dig into this, to, to really explore it? Because if this is true, it is the most important thing in the world. Way more important than the things that we continually put in front of ourselves as goals of or marks of success. This is even greater and bigger. So let me give us just a little bit of a head start this morning. I think if you really start to dig into the teaching of Jesus, here's what I think you're going to find. He is not simply looking for people to claim belief in him. He's looking for disciples. 
He's not simply looking for people to claim belief in him. He's looking for disciples. In other words, he's looking for people whose belief is verified through their continuing devotion to him. This is what the New Testament would call endurance. He is looking for those whose belief is verified through their continuing devotion to him and his teaching. Or put another way, he's not just looking for people who believe, he's really looking for followers. People for whom belief translates into allegiance and loyalty. Let's look back at John 8, but I want to back up just a little bit before our primary text today. Go back with me to verse 21. Jesus has made these claims about being living water. He's claimed to be the light of the world. And he's seemingly addressing like a mixed crowd of Jewish pilgrims in the city. Uh, Some just regular Joes who are there for the festival. uh, Some potentially Pharisees or teachers of the law. Um, Also seemingly some who uh, do not believe him at all and are completely opposed to him. And then seemingly other people who are maybe open to him and perhaps believe him. Look at verse 21. Then he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. There's that word again. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then look what it says, verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So he's saying hard things there, obviously. He's saying challenging things. And even you may be reading that going, what what exactly does he mean there? I'd encourage you maybe to go back and listen to our sermon from this past week where we got into a little bit of that. But, But he's having this exchange with these people about his validity, his authority, his truthfulness. And he makes some astounding claims, namely, I am not of this world. Right? I'm not just one of you guys. I am from somewhere else. But a part of Jesus' argument here is not just that he's from somewhere else, but that he is not alone. That he is not just testifying about himself, but rather that the Father has sent him and that the Father is with him and that the Father also testifies about him and that he does nothing apart from the Father. That he only does what he sees the Father doing. Jesus effectively says, the Father has sent me and I I am fully devoted to him. I do what he tells me to do. Hold on to that. Hold on to that idea. Now, John tells us in verse 30 that that Jesus' rhetoric was convincing to many. Many, it says. 
Not everyone, but many believed in him. And, and then John tells us that Jesus turned his attention to them. This is verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he turns his attention to the people who believe in him. And my guess is, it doesn't state this explicitly, although it has earlier in John's gospel. My guess is that Jesus has a sense of who is inclined toward belief and who isn't. Because John has already made the case that Jesus has this omniscient knowing of the hearts of people. And so it's not like those who believe have cordoned themselves off in a little group and Jesus then turns and looks at them, right? No, they're all together. But, but he begins addressing this group specifically. And what is the literal first thing that Jesus says to this group of quote-unquote believers? He says, if, that's the first word, if you really want to be my disciples, you will remain in my word. Or you will abide in my word, or you will hold to my word. Other translations say things like, you will remain in my teaching, or you will hold to my teaching. And, and hopefully, you notice right off the bat that continually holding to Jesus' teaching is a different thing from simply believing he is truthful. Right? It's one thing to say, I think he's telling the truth and he is who he says he is. It's another thing to hold to his teaching in your life. But yet, if you want to be my disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. Jump back to the beginning of today's passage in verse 37, where Jesus says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, and I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. He goes into this whole exchange about, who's your father? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, no, no, no. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the things Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, meaning we're not from some other people group. What are you talking about? Abraham is our ancestor. He's our father. We have one father, but look here. Verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So they take it back a step farther. They go, Abraham's our ancestor. He's definitely our father. We're not from some other people group. We're not, a, we're not Samaritans, right? But even before that, God is the one who sent Abraham. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now here's what's interesting. At no point has John indicated to us that Jesus has stopped directly addressing those who believed. 
Now, I've never read uh, Dale Carnegie's famous self-help book from the 1930s, How to Win Friends and Influence People, but I imagine there's not a chapter entitled, Tell People They're Children of the Devil, right? But as I read the Gospels, guys, this is a very Jesus thing to do. This is something he does often when people initially express belief in him. Think of the rich young ruler, right? It, it, there's this sense in which Jesus tends to go, oh yeah, prove it. Think of Luke 9. Luke 9, uh, 57 through 62 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Prove it. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Prove it. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Prove it. Now you may, may say, well, well, doesn't John 3.16 say that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life? It, it does say that. That's true. And yet you have to allow Jesus to define what belief is. Right? We don't get to define that for ourselves. We have to look to Christ and say, what does Jesus mean when he calls us to belief? And in my mind, Jesus clearly defines it in terms of devotion to him. As one scholar said, not just intellectual agreement, but moral commitment. And it makes sense if I actually believe he is Lord and master, why would I not be devoted to him? Now, here's what I think Jesus is doing with this whole juxtaposition between the people being children of Abraham and children of the devil. Um, verse 39 is key here. Jesus is pointing out that the people even though they are Jewish, they're not really followers of Abraham. Abraham is their ancestor, yeah, but Abraham's not the person that they are patterning their lives after. Instead, they're followers of themselves, largely. They're followers of their own sinfulness or followers of the devil, as it were. In Jesus' grid, what does he say? He says, Satan is... Not, not just a liar, he is the father of lies. And, and so by buying into the lies that he has sown into your life, you are essentially patterning your life after him. You're buying into these things that are untrue, these things that are falsehoods. Again, this, this battle between truth and falsehood. So they claim Abraham as their father. They're, they're not Satanists. Like they, they're not like actively worshiping the devil. That's, that's not what he's talking about. They think of Abraham as their father, but at the end of the day, their devotion is not really to Abraham. Their devotion is to themselves and their own sin. They've bought into these falsehoods that have been spun in their lives. And Jesus is saying, that thing, that what you're doing, that kind of thing does not fly with me. 
You cannot claim me and yet remain devoted to your own sin. You cannot serve two masters. This is why Jesus told them that they needed to be set free. Like if you remember the context from last week of this whole exchange, remember? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we said free from what? And the answer was sin. The answer was the effects of the enemy in your life and in our world. Jesus said, you no longer, you will no longer be slaves to sin, which is what you have been. And, and if you remember last week, Jesus said that it was that very thing that his truth freed people from. You will know the truth and the truth what truth are we talking about here? We're talking about the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. The truth will set you free. But go back to verse 31 that we read a minute ago and really look at what he says here. To the Jews who had believed, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Not if you just agree with me, not if you just think that I am actually the Son of God or I am actually the Messiah. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Notice there's an order to that. And it begins with devotion or allegiance to Christ. It begins with holding to the truthfulness of Jesus' teachings, not just in agreement, but in devotion. Because it is true, I am going to seek to follow it. And then I will know the truth, and the truth will set me free. So it begins with holding to the teaching of Jesus, which requires what? Faith. It requires faith. And it is through devotion, or what some would call allegiance, I like that word a lot, allegiance to Christ, that we come to a deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of the truth of Christ and experience true freedom from sin. That doesn't mean we become sinless, as we talked about last week. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with sin anymore, but it means we're no longer enslaved to it. What Jesus seems to be doing here is making the word father synonymous with the word master. And here in the text, these people claim both Abraham and God as their father. But Jesus points out the inconsistency of their claim. If they were really your fathers, you would be doing their works. And Jesus says this as someone who only does what he sees his father doing. So Jesus is the model here of the one who is truly consistent in his claims about himself. And his call or his challenge to the people is to also become truly consistent. Not just through claiming him, not just believing he is who he says he is, but by being obedient to him. So how do the people respond when they're challenged with this truth? Look at this. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? They immediately respond with what? Lies about Jesus. 
falsehoods about Jesus. And this is like a prime insult for them, by the way. Like, you're nothing but a Samaritan. You're worse than a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan with a demon. Right? That's what's really going on here. And then the argument just kind of devolves. Verse 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So the more Jesus talks, the more these people who believed in him go on the defensive and eventually get to, who do you think you are? Verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? What are you saying? And then in response, Jesus makes this super strange statement about Abraham. This is verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? But Abraham's been dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Notice that Jesus says there, your father, Abraham. He doesn't say our father, Abraham, even though Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. Abraham is not his master, right? Abraham is not the one that Jesus listens to and obeys. Jesus isn't patterning his life after Abraham. No, God is his master. God is his father. God is the one that he's emulating. I only do what I see him doing. I'm not entirely sure what he means here in verse 56 that Abraham has seen Jesus's day. I, I read no fewer than six or seven different scholarly perspectives on, on that verse. I, I really think it is meant, it's sort of like tailor-made to solicit the response that it solicits here in the text because it basically makes the crowd go, what in the world are you talking about? Like it genuinely baffles them. What? what? But, but go on, read on. How can Abraham see you? And then Jesus responds with this penultimate claim of his identity. Before Abraham was, I am. Which is not correct grammar, is it? The tense is all off, but, but that's intentional. Because Jesus isn't saying, before Abraham was, I was. He's not saying, before Abraham existed, I existed. No, no, no. He is taking us all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, to the burning bush, to Moses, essentially asking the same question, who are you? And how does God answer? I am who I am. And it's from that statement in the Hebrew that we get the name of God in the Old Testament, that he is Yahweh. He is he is the I am. He is what is. This is Jesus saying, I am what is. It wasn't just that I was before Moses. 
It wasn't just that I was before Abraham. I am. I am the word. I am the logos. I am the one through which all things were made. Which is why this chapter ends with the people picking up stones to kill him. Because what he has just said is pure blasphemy to their ears. And it is punishable by death under the law of Moses. Before Abraham was, I am. Now here's the question for us today, guys, as I wrap up. Do you believe that? Do you believe the claims that Jesus is making about himself? Well, let me ask it this way. Who is your father? Like, that's really what this conversation centers around. Who's your father? Who is your master? Who is the one that you are fully devoted to? Who is the one that you're patterning your life after? Do you believe him? Well, I was baptized when I was an infant. Wonderful. You know, I got baptized when I was 14, and I professed faith in Christ. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I've been on, I've been on several mission trips, you know, to other parts of the world. Great. That's awesome. But is your life increasingly coming under the lordship of Christ. There's this interesting parable called the parable of the sheep and the goats that you may be familiar with, where it describes a future time when Jesus will eventually bring the whole earth in front of him and judge the earth and divide people out into sheep and goats. And, and what, it, what it suggests is that there are going to be people who are like, wait, I'm not a goat, I'm a sheep. And they push back against his judgment and they say, but didn't I do this for you? And didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And what about this? Like they, they, they list out their list of spiritual achievements. And what he says is, I don't know you. And I think there's a very similar thing going on in this text. Abraham's our father. That means God's our father. I mean, we're, we're Hebrews, right? We're Jews. You know how many times I've been to the temple? You know how many times I've come to this feast of booths and worshiped the Lord? Like, of course he's my father. No, but Jesus says, no, he's not. Because if he really was, your life would look completely different. And so it's unavoidable that we would read this and not have the spotlight turned on our own hearts and go, is this true of your life? Is he really your master? Is he the one you're devoted to? Does he have your allegiance and your loyalty? And, and for all of us, let's be real. The answer is not completely. Not completely. There are still parts of my life 
that I have not fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And so what we say often, almost as a refrain for us, is that we are all unbelievers in some area, in some way, in some shape, in some form. You might not project that to other people. You might not make that claim to other people. But when you look in your heart, you know what I'm saying is true. There are some things I'm fully happy to trust him with, and then there are other things that I want to be in full control of in my life. And here's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to continually submit those things to him because he does not desire only our minds or only the things that we claim to believe. He desires all of us. And he is calling us through his teaching to examine ourselves and our hearts. And through the power of his spirit, I believe he reveals to us the things that he has called us to repent of, to turn away from, to give over to him, and to begin down a new road. In chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that this was like being born again. And I don't think that's a one-time thing, guys. I think we are continually, through his power, being born again into the people that he would have us be. That we are being progressively sanctified into the people that he would have us be. Unless you are not seeking to submit your life to him. Unless he genuinely is not your master. And then as he said to this crowd, you will die in your sin. You won't be freed from what he has come to free you from. Does that make sense? You don't have to do that on your own. This is not simply about your work. Don't come away from this thinking, man, I've got to get way better at giving stuff over to Jesus. No, no, no. What I have to do is relinquish control of my life. Easier said than done. But it begins by truly immersing myself in the teaching of Christ. I cannot do any of this on my own. I am incapable. But if I'm unwilling to immerse myself in the teaching of Christ so that it might become my state of being, so that I might increasingly be obedient to him, there's no way. It's not going to happen. This is why he's given us the spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, reading of scripture, that as a people, we would be continually, continually seeking to center our lives around him as our orienting axis so that he might do his work of reconciliation within us and restoration within us so that he might rebirth us, as it were. It's why he's given us the church so that we don't have to do that on our own. That's why he's put other people in your life who are maybe farther down the road. And let me tell you, if this is something you want to talk about, I would love to sit down with you and talk about this. What does this look like for you? What does it look like in your life? What is he showing you? What is he revealing to you? What do you need to confess and move past, right? We're not meant to do this alone, guys. But my prayer for you and for myself is that increasingly our lives would be coming under the lordship of Christ, that we would be submitting ourselves to his teaching, that we would be a people whose lives produce fruit that is in accordance with salvation. 
because Christ has moved within us and his Holy Spirit is in us. Let us go to him in prayer. Father, Lord, convict us of these truths today and help us with the things that we don't understand. I know that I uh, am incapable of even articulating this fully or adequately. And so, Lord, we pray that through your spirit that you would take your word and that you would communicate it into our minds and hearts. God, that you would use the truth of your Holy Scripture to show us what the path looks like and that we would be increasingly discontent with anything other than you. Help us as we are in the midst of this world and are so susceptible to the lies of the enemy. Help us, God, to, to be on guard. And help us to truly begin to fill our days with the pursuit of you. Surround us with other believers to encourage us in that, to hold us accountable, to teach us what that looks like. And may we join hands as the body of Christ as we go out into this world as your ambassadors to be a people who don't just claim you, but to, a people, to be a people whose lives truly reflect your goodness and grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.